So before I actually get started, Layla Hassan, who has a stall here, is going to come and do a really quick uh, talk. Good morning from Palestine. Thank you so much for the organizer who invited me. Thank you to accept me, Women in Hebron, part of your conference. And I never, forever heard your stories before. And this make me, I want to come next time, inshallah, to learn more and more by you. Believe me, I came to do the business, but I found myself, I want to come more to hear your stories again. And I, I came from Four Borders to, to do the business here. For, I am part of Women in Hebron, and I'm the manager of the shop who do the business. And most of the time, I'm volunteer. And I, I believe never nobody can be poor if they spend 20 pounds at the table. And you give a smile for 150 women back in Palestine. <laughs> And inshallah, I will have more chance to talk with you later. And everybody, inshallah, will come to my table, even with a smile. Thank you so much. So Leila's store is actually in that room behind you on the left. Um, so my name is Sadia Hamid, and I'm a Felia BME rep. Uh, a prolific Philia podcaster, uh, a spokeswoman for the Council of Ex-Muslims of Britain and director of Gloucestershire Sisters, uh, which is an organisation that supports BME women around harmful tra traditional practices. What a conference has been so far, right? Um, with the opening speech of Pragya Patel, the performance of WAST, set the Sex Worker Memorial March and the awesome party last night. It's both been emotional and and a brilliant conference so far, but there's so much more to come. Um, I have to make a bit of a confession, actually. So I found feminism in my early 20s at university. I was brought up in a, a completely not political house, um, and I had two options, either to be a housewife or a, a wife that was going to be a typist. Um, I can't tell you how upset it was when I started working at a reception, and I thought, shit, it's coming true. So I was devastated. Um, so I survived uh, on a base of violence, imprisonment, starvation, um, and attempted forced marriages, a few of them. Um, and I escaped and I went to university. And I stumbled on feminism. And while simultaneously becoming active and raising uh, awareness about the issues of harm harmful traditional practices, I also found feminism at the same time. And I really, really felt like it was a home for me. Um, the theories that I was reading were really, really speaking to me. But in practice, I was seeing something different. And by the time I met Lisa Marie, I was really disheartened, actually. Um, and by then, I no longer called myself a feminist. And she's dragged me kicking and screaming back, actually. <laughs> so I have to thank her. But we also should really, really, once again, thank Lisa Marie for all the work that she does putting these fantastic And thank these amazing volunteers. I mean, it's not just the conference that you see them at. They work throughout the year for nothing. They, they just do it because they care. 
and they put so much time, energy, resources into it, just off their own back. They're amazing. So please put your hands together for the amazing senior volunteers. I've got a bit of a cheeky request to make whilst I've got this, this platform. So I want to speak to you as fellow sisters uh, in, uh, in solidarity. There's, a, there's an amazing human's right, human rights and women's rights advocate in Pakistan, um, Gulale Ismail is her name. She fought against the abuse of women and girls and she, so, she, she, and she fought for women's rights, their education, suffrage and political involvement. She noticed the rise of religious fundamentalism and challenged it head on within Pakistan. She didn't aim to leave Pakistan at all. She started at age 16 and she's been doing it for 17 years. In 2013, armed men came to her house and threatened her and her family. They told her, stop the work that you're doing and stop westernizing our society. In an attempt to stop her work entirely, Gulale was accused of blasphemy, a crime that carries the death penalty in Pakistan. She was tried, tri they tried as terrorists. If you're accused of blasphemy, it's the exact same process as a terrorism charge. You don't get the le same legal representation. You don't get to fight back and collect evidence on your own behalf. In, in 2018, uh, a young, uh, uh, the, this allegation resulted in uh, an influx of hundreds of threats from normal people against her. In 2018, a young Pashtun man was killed in a fake terrorist encounter, and this resulted in the creation of the Pashtun Tahafuz movement, which Gulale was a part of. Now, Gulale had a fantastic, a huge um, uh, international platform. Gulale raised the issue of the abuse and exploitation within tribal areas of Pakistan by the Pakistani army and the government. Furthermore, Gulale alleged that Pakistan had been protecting and promoting terrorism, uh, pr protecting the terrorist groups and promoting terrorism and facilitating terrorism. Within this system, people are being disappeared and in the tribal areas of Pakistan and the women used as sexual slaves. Gulale met one woman who was completely illiterate so every time uh, a soldier came into her house and raped her, she made one line on a piece of paper. And when Gulali went to meet her, she showed her this piece of paper covered in lines, because that was the only way she could document that she was being raped. Gulale campaigned for an end to the war economy in Pakistan and, account and asked for accountability for the actions of the army and intelligence se uh, services within the tribal areas of Pakistan. As a result of her work in 2018, the intelligence services approached her for a meeting where they told her to stop or they would kill her. Gulale went into hiding. This was uh, last year. The threat was very real. False terrorism charges were brought against her. She was put on the exit control list and her picture given to every border patrol team so she couldn't leave the country. She was put on the most wanted list of Pakistan for human rights and women's rights work. Thankfully, she managed to safely escape to New York. Felia wow. does have a small part in that because we interviewed her sister. I'm hoping, touch wood, um, I'm hoping that we'll be able to bring Gulale herself 
to uh, Felia next year. But that wasn't the end. Now Galale is safely out of Pakistan, her, her parents have been arrested. They're tormenting her further through her parents. They arrested her, they have imprisoned, the, they've arrested her parents, they've imprisoned them, and there's no doubt that they're torturing them. Please raise your voices to help the profile of Galalia so that we can get the whole world talking about it. Please follow her on Twitter. Her Twitter is Gulale Ismail. I've given it to the team, so it should come up. Um, and thank you for listening. Now, from one amazing woman in Pakistan to some amazing women right here in, in the room with us. First up is Marie Laguerre. I said that right? Sorry. <laughs> Marie is a French woman from Paris. She was assaulted by a man following verbal abuse, thankfully, Thankfully, the whole incident was caught on CCTV video and it went viral in 2018. The vi video drew media attention, which, was, which Marie used to draw attention to the issue of violence against women and sexism in general. This also led to Marie being harassed online by hundreds of people, mostly men. Um, uh, this is currently being investigated following charges that she pressed. Marie was listed as the BBC's 100 women. Uh, Marie was listed on the BBC's 100 women list, and she also participated in the United Nations campaign against violence against women in 2018. Please put your hands together for Marie. to hear all of the women who spoke yesterday and who are going to speak today. It's uh, really, really uh, just so amazing. Um, so yeah, just to uh, repeat what she said that about my story, um, it, I guess it's just an, an ordinary story that um, became extraordinary from the, 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 the conditions. Uh, like she said, I was working uh, last summer 2018 in the street. I was catcalled by a man. I talked back to him. I told him to shut the fuck up. He didn't, uh, he didn't enjoy it. Uh, probably something about fragile ego. Uh, and then he punched me. Um, I don't think that's actually something extraordinary. I think that's something that happens every day, absolutely everywhere in the world. But the only difference is that it was caught on CCTV. Uh, on tape, and uh, I got the video and I published it on social media the next day, uh, and it became like uh, like you said, absolutely viral. Um, I also pressed charges. Um, I think it's really interesting that uh, the video became viral uh, because people were shocked by the violence. Um, I, I was a bit surprised because the violence shown in the video is a violence that we women have been talking about for years, for decades, for centuries, and it's only until people could actually see it with their own eyes that they believed how bad it was. So yes, it was positive that people talked about it, but it was also a little bit revealing of how society still has a hard time believing women for what we say and believing that we are always exaggerating. <coughs> and just like uh, people say me too, and today we started, as women, we started uh, talking. I don't think that's what's, what, that's what's been happening. I think what's been happening is that people are 
slowly starting to listen because women have been speaking for a long time. Um, like you said, uh, the whole uh, assault drew uh, media atten attention. Um, I was contacted by media from absolutely all the media of France, I think, and media from all over the world. Uh, for me, it was not easy to accept uh, answering the interviews, but I did it because I felt like I had a responsibility at this moment to use my voice for all the women who don't have the voice. Um, of course, it wasn't easy because when you come out as a feminist uh, publicly, of course, you, you put yourself at risk. Um, I must say that mediatization has been absolutely exhausting. Um, it's not, uh, I say that, I mean, I say that because a lot of people glamorize it, think it's, uh, it's just a lot of fun and things like that, but it's not. It's, uh, I did it because I thought it was really important to raise awareness. I also received a lot of support, I have to say, from uh, people all over the world. I received so much messages from women from absolutely everywhere who um, identify with my story. Um, and it was really, really overwhelming. I still get this message of support. That's what helps me uh, continue the fight. And yeah, there's, there's been a huge sisterhood and it's just so amazing when we connect and we realize that you can be, you can live from the other side of the world, be we, but we all have this, uh, commun this, uh, this shared experience of violence and um, it really um, brings us together. And I think that everyone, every time one woman stands up for herself, she stands up for all the women and she paves the way for the next one to speak. About my experience with justice, I have to say I've been extremely lucky, even though it has been really, really hard. I pressed charges, um, I was well received, which is not really common actually. Um, there, was a, there was an investigation, but the investigation only happened because of the mediatization and because of the international pressure, I believe. Because every, every media from the world were watched, saw the video and they broadcasted it and I think that the government felt uh, pressure to find the man because otherwise people were like, oh my god, Paris, the city of love, no, no. <laughs> So I'm, I'm absolutely, I'm absolutely con conscious that uh, it's not uh, ordinary. It's not an ordinary story. But because I had this chance, I, because I had this op this chance to, to get the investigation, to get justice, I had to again use this uh, this visibility to to talk about uh, violence against girls and women and sexism in general. Um, they found the man who assaulted me. It still took them one month to find him. Um, <laughs> Uh, I got a trial, which again is not really common, and uh, I got justice. He was convinced for six months of prison. No deal. Uh, you're not going to be so happy after I add that he was convinced nine times before at only 25 uh, years old, including violence against his mother, including uh, pimping and um, sequestration. I don't say English. Uh, kidnapping, but four. Yes, so six months, mm, you can be happy, but also you can think, ah. uh, But still, it was really uh, important and uh, an important step for uh, healing to get justice. But it's also important that I talk about how hard it was to be in trial 
and especially to hear the pleading of the defense, because I think that is something that all the women who suffer violence they go, have to go through, is listening to just horrible uh, pleading in, of the defense. Uh, for me, uh, it was uh, the, the lawyer who was defending uh, this guy <coughs> implied that I lied, and I think that's something that happens <laughs> to all the victims. They're gonna attack the victim, they're gonna make it the accused one. And uh, it was really, really frustrating to listen to this because me, um, from the beginning, I, I never lied about anything. I always made sure that all my st statements were uh, precise and correct with the help of the, the witnesses and, and the video. On the other hand, the, the, the man who assaulted me, he, he changed his version of, the, of what happened like two or three times. He first uh, admitted everything. Then he said, uh, he said, no, not everything. And uh, apparently, I'm the one who teased him by walking in front of him. <laughs> and at the end, he said that he was only listening to music and singing. Um, and for me, this was uh, this is really important to talk about because just it's it's just like really hard as a victim to have to go through this process, and uh, just listening to someone just like saying that we're 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 liars. It's just it's just horrible. And also, uh, in my case, I was able to give precise version of what happens, but but there's so many women who are not precise in their statements, but it makes sense because when you go through uh, through a, an assault, it can be a sexual assault worse, you, you, you have this, uh, this chemistry in your brain that happens, you're uh, in situation, in shock. And I think that today in this justice system, at least in France, but I would not be surprised if it's the case here as well, there is a profound, a deep, unprofessional lack of knowledge in terms of what happens in the brains for victims, and they don't take it into account. And the second you make a mistake in your statement as a victim, they're going to blame it on you. Um, of course, I was also compared by the, the, the defense lawyer. I was also compared to other victims, saying that there is worse violence, that I was not a real victim. And again, that's a very uh, that's a that's a strategy for men men's rights activists, saying that there's always worse. But the problem is that if there's, there's always going to be worse. And it's by it's if we start by tolerating the small violence, even the sexist jokes, then we're going to start tolerating more and more. And that's how it happens. And that's a, that's an, that's a strategy they use to silence us. Um, and like I said, of course, the victim is always blamed. Uh, like I was blamed for apparently provoking him. Uh, I was also blamed in general uh, for uh, not looking not looking traumatized enough because I was talking to media. I was also blamed for looking tra too traumatized. <laughs> and finally, she also said something that I think is really important. She said that the costume of sexism was too heavy for, for him, the man who assaulted me. I just want to say, if you don't want to wear the costume of sexism, just don't be a fucking asshole. Sorry about that. <laughs> I got justice and I'm really grateful that I did, but it's really important for me to put it back in context and say that I'm the lucky one, even if it's not lucky, the whole story, and remi remind everyone that uh, in France it's only 1% of victims of rape who, are, who see their rapist convicted. I think I heard yesterday it's 1.5 here in the UK. So, and I just want to add that for children in France it's 0.3% who see their rapist convicted. <laughs> And this impunity is what uh, favors men uh, to uh, to continue being violent. It's what it's. Just, it, this is this is one of the root of the problem. Um, like uh, like uh, Sadia said, I also received the hate messages this, during this whole process. Uh, cyber cyber harassment. I received sexist insults. Uh, 
slut, bitch, cut whore, everything you can think of. Uh, I was attacked on my looks. I was called. I was. I was called that I was too ugly to be hit on, which is really interesting. How they want to attack us? They're gonna attack us on our looks because they're, that's what they've been reducing us forever. But I just want to remind it. Every, of, 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 I think everybody knows it here, but I just want to remi remind us that we do not need to be beautiful to deserve to exist. I was also insulted using gender stereotypes. Uh, I was called an attention seeker, a profiteer, and opportunistic. Basically, uh, just the fact that I, as a woman, uh, I'm, I'm existing in the public, uh, in public, uh, in public attention, in the public media, and defending my rights. It's too much for them. It's really negative. It's, it's not. It's just not womanly to to do that. And of course, I was called a liar, even though there is a video. I was called uh, an actress uh, hired by the government. <laughs> oh, because apparently I look like the Ministry of Women's Rights. Uh, so. And I, again, it's it's super revealing. That shows how that shows how uh, some people are in denial regarding violence against women because for them it's easier to believe that we are liars than to believe that oh, for one f that the, for that for them it's easier that we are liars than to believe that. Maybe she's not my first. For them it's easier to believe that we we stage a fake assault than believing that. From all the numerous assaults that happened just in the street of Paris, that uh, we, there was a luck that for once it was videotaped. That's, that shows the denial. And of course, I received messages about how I deserved it somehow. Uh, and I received threats, um, death threats, rape threats, uh, threats of assaulting me. Um, words that uh, sadly are printed in my head, and I think I will never be able to forget them. And that's why I want to talk about cyber harassment, cyber violence, because it has been really traumatizing. I, at the time, I was uh, saying and thinking that it was more violent than the actual assault. It has really serious consequences in health and also in how we um, we censor ourselves, because because it's just exhausting that every time you will uh, say, give give your opinion on something or just express yourself, you'll be targeted, you'll be attacked, you'll be harassed. And it just pumps our energy. And that's what I think all feminists go are going through, and it's just exhausting. There's also how, uh, and I think you all know about that, how our, our accounts are being blocked, and not the ones of the one who uh, harass us. And like she said, uh, I pressed charges about that because to me it was uh, in the same idea of pressing charges for the assault, is that as long as I can do it, I will not stop until all the men who attack me are being judged, hopefully convicted. Yeah. Um, just a quick um, analyze that I did, uh, I found some interesting similarities between street harassment and cyber harassment. They're, first of all, they all happen in public space. Um, they're all uh, using the isolation of the victim because when you're walking on the street, usually you're being cattled when you're alone. And the same on the internet, they're gonna send you private messages. There's this idea of, uh, the idea of isolation. There's also the impunity because it's, the police doesn't really try to find the catcallers. They, they don't also really try to find the people who harass us online. Mostly it's because the uh, internet is uh, um, regulated by international law, so it's hard to, uh, it's hard to use the law of your country to get justice if they are uh, based uh, abroad. And the goal of this violence is, is similar. It's to silence us and it's to remove us from public spaces. 
they, 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 the message when they are catcalling us, when they are uh, imposing us uh, their opinion on our, um, on, on our looks uh, on, uh, on the street is basically to tell us that, okay, you, we're improving, I'm approving you because I'm only, tolerating, um, I'm only tolerating you in the public space, depending on, on how I decide that you can be here. And it's the same on the internet. We are not welcome. We have to take the space and we have to fight. And the same, and it also affects us similar, it affects us the both uh, harassment. Um, we change our habits. Uh, even if I don't want to, I ended up changing my habits, the way I dress, the when I go out, with who I go out, and what streets I use. And the same with the internet. I, I do not, I do not write as, I do not uh, do activism as much online because honestly I'm traumatized and uh, I cannot go through harassment again. Um, what consequences does those violence have uh, on me? It's important to say uh, from all of this, I have PTSD, I went through depression, still going through. I have anxiety, I have a hard time going out. I've had eating disorder, sleep disorder. And I know I'm not the only one, that's why I'm talking about it. I think this is a global public health issue and I think our societies are not uh, taking care of it because if they recognize that violence against women, uh, first of all, 100% of women go through it and we all have PTSD from it. It's, I, I, it's just, there's a, I think there's some money issue or something like that, but it, they just don't want to acknowledge that and we need them to. And it can also have more dramatic, dramatic consequences, especially if the violence happens at a young age. This is why, this is how they push uh, young girls to prostitution, to pornography. This is how they hurt us, they break us at a young age. And, uh, sorry, I'm trying to do as fast as I can. Why is it so hard for women to get justice? First of all, we know it's hard to press charges, and we know it takes a lot of courage. Then when we press charges, we some way too often, they refuse to take our complaints. And even when they do, sometimes they just don't do any follow-up and there's no investigation. And when there's an investigation, for me, it was already so hard, and the man was honestly nobody. But when a woman is a victim of violence from a rich, powerful white man, or not even rich, just white men, or not even white, just rich, it gets just horrible. And, and there's, there's, there's a, so much violence from, the, the, from people that are um, pulled onto the victim. Like just for example, the woman who pressed charges against Neymar, the, the, or just the one who pressed charges against Johnny Depp. Oh, those women, they're so brave, I believe. Exactly, Tariq Ramadan in France. Woo! And I know all of you, you already know that, but that's why I always repeat, because for me it's so important to say that, that people have to really realize that sexist and violent men, they're not just uh, in um, unknown people from the street, they're perfectly integrated on, in our society. They call in all shapes, all colors, all religions, or no religions, all age. They're politicians, they're producers, they, they're musicians, they're artists, they're singers, they're teachers, they're doctors, they're CEOs, they're also um, waiters, they're rich, they're poor, they're fathers, they're sons, they're brothers, they're friends, and we need to acknowledge that. has been extremely exhausting. It took, it took so much time of my life. Uh, I, have to, I, had to do my, I had to redo my school year. I, I lost friends. Uh, I'm, still, I'm still sick. I cannot uh, walk. I cannot stand too much because my back is hurting me from, from all the psychological uh, consequences. 
And um, honestly, if we, if we women had to fight for every violence we face, we would literally spend our lives doing it. And, by the t and at the, during the time that we are fighting for dignity, what's happening is that the, the inequality are digging because while we are fighting for our, our justice, those men are working on their careers, on domination and everything. So I just want to say to finish that we should really be caring about ourselves or what we are doing and even when we cannot do the, the maximum, it's already amazing. And uh, just remind us that we are doing a wonderful job. <laughs> from last night. <laughs> so I might sit down part way through this. Okay. Also gonna take this out, it sits nice and loud. Okay, uh, is this working? Why my clicker not work? It's okay, I'll come sit, it's fine. Okay, cool. That doesn't want to work, mate. Oh, why did it? Why did it work? Magic touch. Right. Okay. <laughs> okay. So, um, I um, after the um, uplifting and incredible night we all uh, had last night, I'm here to thoroughly depress you. So I'm going to talk to you um, about all the ways that we blame women and girls um, for being subjected to sexual violence. Um, and then, because um, I wanted to show you uh, a video before I get off, I'm going to um, do a bit of 
talking and then I'm going to show you a video. Hopefully the audio will work, uh, if not tough, and then you don't get the video. So um, I'm going to talk to you about the ways that we blame women and girls and what um, the research is showing us at present, including my own research. Victim blaming is, is just really, really common. We know that the majority of women and girls that have been subjected to sexual violence or abuse will be blamed for being subjected to that violence um, or abuse. And you can see some of the examples of um, how we do this. However, as I'm going to show you through this presentation, it could be anything. There isn't really a set way that women and girls are blamed for sexual violence because you could be blamed for literally anything that suits the narrative at that time or suits the defence solicitor or suits the perpetrator or suits society. Um, so I'm going to show you some of the ways that we do that. So those are some examples of victim blaming and examples of self-blame. One of the, I guess, one of the saddest things about self-blame and the way women blame themselves for sexual violence and abuse is that you don't actually have to have been blamed by somebody else to start blaming yourself. It is fairly common for a woman or girl to blame herself for being abused or trafficked or raped or assaulted from the moment that it happens. It doesn't necessarily mean that you went somewhere and somebody told you that you should have taken more responsibility or it was your fault or it was something you could have done differently because that will kick in before that, ju that external judgment. Victim blaming, um, in my research, I tend to come at it from three different angles and we can use the same in um, self-blame. It's really useful for uh, just analysing the way that people talk about women and girls. So victim blaming tends to start off behavioural. So the first thing that the media, the institutions, the police, CPS, health services, professionals, the first thing that gets attacked is your behaviour. It is, could you have done something differently? Why were you there at that time? You know, why were you drinking? Why were you... There's all, all of the different behaviours that could possibly be blamed. That comes first. The attack on behaviour is usually the, the first line of attack. When attacking your behaviour does not work or doesn't fully blame you for that assault or rape or trafficking, the next thing that happens is characterological blame, which is the attack on character. That you're promiscuous, you're naive, you're stupid, you shouldn't have trusted that person. Um, however, as this has gone on and become more and more commonplace and in some cases more and more palatable, what we now see is a mixture of characterological and behavioural blame. It's sort of like you shouldn't have been doing that and also you should have known what was coming next or whatever. Situational blame interests me because I see it a lot um, now. It's a lot more common and I think it's part of that um, trying to make victim blaming more palatable. So situational blaming is where you don't really blame the woman or girl. You sort of blame the situation she was in. So examples of that are things like when someone says, um, well, if you're going to go to parties like that, that's what happens at parties like that. I was like, the fucking party didn't attack her though, did it? <laughs> so it, it wasn't the party, it's not the hotel, it's not the taxi, it's not the dark street, it's not the, you know, it's, it, it's, it's not all of these situations that cause sexual assault and rape and violence, it's men. So we're not naming the problem. Yeah. 
situational blaming is almost like this cop-out where you don't name the offender. The offender gets erased from their own offence by being able to talk about how the situation caused this to happen. Like, oh, you know, if you're going to get into a taxi at two in the morning after having a drink, then you should know that that might happen. No, you shouldn't. Like, at all. But that's the way situational blaming works. However, we tend to see, like, quite a mixture of these now. The best way uh, that i found to look at victim blaming of women and girls is using an ecological model. Even though that sounds sophisticated, it's not. Uh, most of the, um, I think most of the biggest theories in psychology and human development, they sound, um, the names of them sound really sophisticated and like somebody probably got like six promotions and like an 80 grand pay rise out of them. They're actually really simple. Uh, they still probably did get six promotions and an 80 grand pay rise out of them though. Um, so the ecological model's been being used since the 70s and it, the best way to explain it is that it's a way of making sure that you uh, look at all levels of society rather than just focusing on the individual. A lot of psychological research that looks at the victim blaming of women and girls tends to focus on the woman herself. Like, what is it about this woman or girl that meant that she was blamed? Was it her behaviour? Is it what she looks like? Is it where she was brought up? Is it, you know, her ethnicity? Is it her body type? But I preferred, when I was working, to look at all levels of society. And so there is actually about 60 years worth of research that can back up everything around my model here. So every word that's at the different system, the different level of society, every word that's around here has pretty much between, anywhere between about 10 and about 40 or 50 years worth of evidence that those things are encouraging or colluding with or um, causing the victim blaming of women and girls. So I'm going to talk to you, I'm going to show you some of the evidence of that. The first one is rape myths. Now, most of you, if you have a look on the screen, may have sort of feel really familiar with rape myths. We talk about it a lot. A lot of people um, have theorised that rape myths are the reason that we blame women and girls for sexual violence. I don't accept that. I think the rape myths are very important. I think they're feeding a narrative. I don't think they're the reason that we blame women and girls. I think it's a mixture of things, um, which if you read my book or if you read the thesis, if you're a bit of a nerd and you want to read 420 pages of that, um, then it, it's, it is more complicated than that. But rape myths are definitely still affecting public perception. You can see there that recent studies have shown that between a third and a half of the general public do actually believe the things written on screen. One of the major issues with that, of course, is that the general public make up juries. <laughs> um, so if you consider that potentially a third to a half of your jury on every trial may believe the things written on that board, you instantly have a very serious problem with that trial. Obviously, um, sexism and misogyny has been used to explain victim blaming of women and girls uh, since Martha Burr um, and since Brown Miller and people like that, which were 60s, sort of second wave feminists. Um, and I just want to pick up on a couple of these. Um, there's some statements here that really do feed into victim blaming. So one of them is, women and girls should act sexy but not slutty. <laughs> which is like this. You're supposed to be desirable but not too desirable. No, 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 because that's, that's a mistake. So society would expect you to get up in the morning, look attractive, 
look after yourself, present yourself well, but not too well because then you're asking for it. So you're supposed to be sexy enough that you'll be accepted, but not too sexy that you're actually drawing attention to yourself because then you're just gonna cause whatever is coming. And an example of that is these little weird things that we do, like um, that strange, like loads of women in this room are gonna know what I mean when I say this. You know when you go, you can have your boobs out, but not your legs, but you can have your legs out, but not your boobs, you can't have them both at the same time because that's, that's just too much. It's too much. Yeah? That's sexy, but not a slut. That's like, where is the balance here? between me being a bit sexy, but not too sexy. Um, so that's an example of that, is like when women cross over that, whatever that fucking imaginary bar barrier is there, of like, too, whoa, too sexy, uh, then you're in trouble. Women and girls should be sexually available, but also engage in token resistance. Research from the 80s showed that women and girls are expected to engage in token resistance, which is where you say no, even though you want it, sex, dating, whatever, because you don't want to appear easy. Now, one of my favorite ever studies, which probably wouldn't pass ethics now, <laughs> um, was Garcia's work in 1984, where they placed Confederate psycholo uh, psychology researchers in a bar. So they put women in a bar, and then they waited for men to just chat them up and hit on them and stuff, right? And then they had other psychologists in the bar that were just watching this study happen, and they were taking note of the men's behaviors. And um, the, the women were given a set of escalating behaviours to show men that they weren't interested. So one of them, the first one, was to just go, uh, I'm not interested, thanks. And then if that didn't work, which it didn't, um, <laughs> then they were supposed to get a little bit more assertive and go, look mate, not interested. And then if that didn't work, they were then supposed to move on to a set of behaviours and it was, there was about eight behaviours that they were to escalate to. My favourite is number four, which was, um, as the man was still chatting them up, to just do this. <laughs> oh, I would have bloody loved to be a fly on the wall in that study. Um, and then after that, she had to um, visibly get distressed. After that, she had to cry and then after that she had to scream for help. And in that study, they actually approached the men afterwards and they interviewed them and was like, why didn't you stop on the first no? Uh, they found that the majority of men stopped when she cried. <laughs> and then when they interviewed them afterwards, they asked them why and they said, because I thought she was just being coy. I thought she was just playing hard to get, so I carried on. That study was ex extremely important, but it also is important in victim blaming because it, um, it feeds into the issues we have around why no doesn't mean no. Um, also, although I've not got time to talk about it right now, it's also one of the reasons why I have real, a real issue with the consent education in schools at the moment because it's too simple. Just being like, yes means yes and no means no. Oh great, that fucking works, doesn't it? that no it doesn't so stop teaching them that start teaching them the nuances right safety advice some of the things that are up there anti-rape wear is a thing now we blame women by expecting them to wear ridiculous uh, items so you've got the anti-rape knickers you can look these up if you don't know what these are they're now they're being sold on facebook 
So if you like, they come up sometimes, and you just get your anti-rape knickers. They're basically a pair of knickers. They've got like a locket. It's like chastity belt, basically. Um, and you just like sort of they have a lock-in because um, the people who design them have absolutely no understanding of violence or abuse, obviously. Anti-rape bras, which I cannot tell you how they work. Um, because of the nature of rape and where a bra is on your body. <laughs> so I'm not sure how they work. Then you've got the anti-rape jewellery, which I'm fairly sure is illegal. So it's like a ring, a little knife comes out and stab it. <laughs> and, then there's, and then there's the anti-rape necklaces, which is like a necklace and a little knife comes out and you stab it. <laughs> And then there's the anti-rape bracelets, and a little knife comes out, you can stop. Um, and you can buy these online. I'm fairly certain we'd probably get arrested for using those. Um, and then blamed um, for, uh, for using your little anti-rape necklace during a rape. So then you've got rape self-defence classes. Lots more research now suggesting that women should be taking rape self-defence classes. Uh, which I categorically disagree with. Advice to women not to jog, walk, use headphones, use a train, eat, live or breathe in case they're attacked. There's more and more safety advice now. <laughs> um, and probably not as funny, child sexual abuse charities in the UK now developing Keep Yourself Safe programmes for th children three and up to keep themselves safe from sexual abuse. I spoke to... Um, a CEO of a, a sexual violence organisation this week um, who told me that she had gone to the launch of a new programme of a charity that everybody in this room knows that's called Resisting Grooming for Children, which they are now going to roll out in primary schools to teach children how to resist sexual grooming. Pardon? Do they mention fathers? No, of course not. They don't mention men in these programmes. Okay. We also teach victim blaming in our education system. One of the most damaging systems you can put a girl or a woman through is primary and secondary school. Um, and that's because of the um, inherent sexism that's within the education system. So when, um, women, when little girls go to reception, um, and those of you who have children in the room will know that your kid changes significantly when they go to school. All of a sudden they start coming home and saying things like, I don't like girls, they're horrible. Oh, you fucking liked them in nursery, what happened then? Like, that's what happened to my kids. They say things like, I don't like playing with trucks because they're for boys. Oh, you played with trucks in nursery? Something happened. Now we know from the research that that's something that's happening is that the entire education system and teachers do uphold gender role stereotypes and then they feed them to the children over a period of years. Um, however, you can also see that this leads to much more serious issues. Um, schools banning school skirts because girls were being harassed by boys because the uh, obvious solution to that would be the skirts being banned. Schools banning the showing of female collarbone in the UK in 2016 and 2017 because it was distracting male teachers. You can look this, so it's all in the press, this, because... So we had here the um, complaints that girls were distracting male teachers from their jobs. I don't know about you, but if I was a head teacher in that school and a bloke came up to me and was like, can I have a, can I have a minute? Um, I'm a bit... I'm getting a bit distracted in my job because the girls' bodies are... You know what I mean? Like the, the, like the legs and the collarbone and stuff. 
Yeah, I would. <laughs> I would have just suspended that bastard. Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> they would not have had a job at the end of that. But the worry about that, of course, is that they didn't do that. A number of those head teachers actually went to the press and said, you know, we've got a real issue with this and we need to change our school uniform because girls' bodies are distracting male teachers. And that's not the response that we want at all. It's not the response we want for girls. So you can see here just some of the stats um, from the Women and Equality Committee report published in 2016. 59% of girls have been sexually harassed at school. 29% of 16 to 18 year old girls had experienced unwanted sexual touching in school environment. Um, boys pulling down girls' trousers or lifting their skirts up was commonplace by the age of 10 years old. We have um, one of the highest numbers of, of rapes being committed on school campuses that we've ever had. Um, and so the education system and the way it's responding to it is definitely feeding into this. One of the things here um, that came out was that 50% of girls said that they would not tell their teachers if they were being sexually harassed or assaulted at school because it would not be taken seriously. Only 3% of teachers reported that they felt confident teaching or supporting students in this topic. So it means that even girls at primary school and secondary school age knew not to tell their teachers that they were being harassed or assaulted at school because no one's going to do anything about it anyway. When teachers were uh, interviewed about this, there was a... Um, very much an issue, uh, sort of a, like boys will be boys, they don't mean it, they don't understand what they're doing, it's normal teenage behaviour type issue. You can't do a, a presentation like this without talking about porn, um, and porn is having a massive impact on the way that we blame women and girls for sexual violence, um, especially because the sexualization and objectification of women in porn dementalizes and dehumanizes women. So then when we commit when men commit offenses against women and girls, it's not seen as, as serious or it's not seen as uh, as impacting them. Mass media, I can't go through all of these, but I am going to show you something in a second. Um, 50% of media reports of rape describe a rape that occurred in a deserted public place committed by a stranger despite this only making up 3% of rape. So that's just one of the ways that the media is affecting um, our understanding of sexual violence. They deliberately pick out the rarest forms, the rarest assaults, the rarest rapes, the abductions, the, the sexual homicides, and then they make them sound as if they're commonplace. The other thing that they do is that they'll deliberately pick up any case that somebody has shouted false allegation at and then they over-report on those as if they're really common, which as you can see, um, even though we reckon, and even though you wouldn't know, that around 1% of reports to police are false allegations, the general public believe anywhere between 20% and a half of, false, of rape reports are false, generally when they have quite high exposure to the media. Okay, I am gonna move on, because I want to show you these. What this is, Okay, I didn't get as long as, I, I'm going to keep talking for a minute, okay? So, um, we blame women even in awareness raising campaigns. This is the type of message that's going out to women and girls. You can, if some of you might not be able to see this right at the back. These are posters, that one says stop, no, stop please, no please, please stop taking unbooked minicabs. One in three reported rapes happen when the victim has been drinking. This was commissioned by NHS England and the Home Office, this one's by Cabwise. This one on the end is Sussex Police. This one that's very um, unclear is Warwickshire Police and it says avoid being a rape victim that's written in blood. Rape, don't be a victim, drink sensibly. This is by uh, South Wales Police. 
All of these are messages to women and girls not to be a rape victim. So I'm gonna finish just here. I don't know if I now have time to show the video, but that's not, that's not too bad, I, I guess. I actually, there is no way that I could fit this into this presentation. That's why it feels rushed, because it is. So I wanna show you the list of all of the factors that I have shown um, are causing and colluding and encouraging the victim blaming of women and girls in society. Apparently you can't get away with writing that in a PhD. challenging the perpetrators. When, when is that going to happen? We, how, long, how much longer do we have to wait? <laughs> and last but not least, we have Miss Yankee. Uh, she's a British Ghanaian writer and performer poet. Miss Yankee captivates people with her honest and heartfelt poetry, which she, is off, which she often uses to advocate for, uh, for the oppressed and the silenced. Please put your hands together for Miss Yankee. Um, I'm not going to give you too much background because the poem that I'm going to share um, tells my story. But I spent most of my 20s in a very abusive relationship. It left me with anxiety, depression, post-traumatic stress disorder, and it wasn't until I had my twins that I actually started processing and dealing with what happened to me. Um, the poem that I'm going to share with you was the catalyst for a series of poems um, called Secret Chains and Chambers, that's what the series is called. And these poems explore domestic violence from a victim and survivor perspective, which I think is really important. Of all of the help that I got after I left, um, it was great, but it seemed to focus a lot on the behaviour of the perpetrator as opposed to the experience of women like me that are going through it. Um, a few of you may have heard me perform this before. I performed it at the Million Women Rise March. I performed it recently at the Women and Girls Network conference. Um, and when I last performed it, I said that I'd been rehearsing it the night before in my kitchen. Um, I have to rehearse in between mum juices, you know, multitasking. And, um, when I finished rehearsing it, I was just crying and crying and crying, and not because of the flashbacks or um, kind of reliving the trauma, but just because I felt this immense pride, that shit, like look 
where I am now and where I was, because I, I don't really recognise that woman anymore um, that I was. Um, <laughs> thank you. Um, so, so now I use poetry to help people, to educate, to, um, to aid my work as an activist. I've done everything from the Stop Trump rally um, to women's marches. So do come and talk to me if you would like to explore how you can use poetry to um, get more visibility um, to your causes and to your organisations because I'm writing a lot of commissions for people at the moment. And in this guide, there is a bit about the work that I do with Poetry Prescribed. Um, and the course that I've designed for women, which I'm hoping to pilot next year using poetry like this. So this is called Another Woman's Cry. As I hold my pen in sorrow, I realize the truth. After all those years of blaming me, I knew that it was you. Excuses can't explain away the terror of his reign. Behind a wall of silence, I kept a mask to hide the pain. You see a happy-go-lucky guy with a six-foot frame. You only know persona. I know the man behind the name. I used to want to scream at you, please don't be taken in. Then I'd realise that I too fell for those eyes and dimpled chin. How could such a good guy be so many other things? How could he raise his hand, apologise, then talk about a ring? How could I ever love someone who had spat upon my face, then stroked my cheek and whispered softly, you know I love you, Ace. How could I ever trust someone who kept a special bat to smash up my things in fury whilst I cowered from his wrath? How I used to clutch my belt until my hands were bloody red, praying he wouldn't crash the car as he threatened to drive me to my death. How could I not tell a soul I was suffering such things? The shame I felt was greater than almost anything. My pride he relied upon to hide his lies and keep me from my freedom. Oh, I'd confront him. Often. Every approach was applied. He said he had an anger problem, something I now know to be a lie. His mother would laugh and joke. He'd always had a bit of a temper. Blinded by a sociopath, fed by her placenta. He said that childhood issues had caused uncontrollable rage, but what he did was all controlled. Control and power was his game. I was always waiting for the bang. Caught up in crescendo. So much time anticipating, I couldn't see the end. Though red flags waved, I missed them. But I remember all of those little remarks. My name, my frame, my education made to jokes for him to laugh. Belittling my culture. Frequent calls at work, criticising everything made me doubt my worth. Lazy, daily, blazing whilst I was working hard. City life destroyed my soul and he destroyed my heart. Coupled with depression, anxiety and hatred, self-esteem in tatters I wanted to leave but was wasted. He said that it wasn't his fault. Begged and promised that things would change. I'd tell myself that I could help to heal his heavy pain. I told him that I loved him as I wiped tears from his face. I said that I believed with love but hate could be replaced. Then he'd paint a pretty picture, futures bright and filled with joy. Words of a loving man actions of a boy on the morning that he woke me with an elbow to my ribs when he took that back to smash my things whilst bellowing and threatening something inside me clicked he slammed the door in anger i calmly packed my things i called my mum in tears to help me end the suffering i guess i was just too tired to fight for his funny kind of love after all was said and done i had finally had enough oh i wailed like i was mourning but that morning i was free I closed the door and opened up, I started being me. The effects of what he done 
It left a scar upon my soul. But even then, I didn't realize the power he'd behold. Domestic violence was something else that really wasn't my life. I just got caught up in a bit of heartbreak, struggle and strife. So when he reappeared, reinvented, I began to fall once more. His web of lies creative, two years he spun them for. He'd given up the demon weed, had anger classes, therapy. He'd made a change to win me back. He'd love me for eternity. I was not ready. I had my doubts. He said he'd give me time, but all along he was plotting, planning, planting deadly minds. I refused to take him back. But I fell into his grasp. And when life got real, red flags, well, they started flying past. I stood my ground and fought back fair, refused to play his game. Sociopath gets scared, cycle is the same. Harasses me and threatens me, exposure is a threat. I kept a record of every last thing so that I could never forget. Facts don't lie, so he can't lie, the paper trail's insane. He knows I'll only speak the truth, so starts a smear campaign. In the meantime, I had found my voice and was craving understanding. What the hell just happened? How the hell am I still standing? I am one in four of every woman in Britain, but the stigma of abuse, it kept me lonely in a prison. Women's Aid embraced me after just one call. Shout to Pat Craven for a book that broke down walls. Thank you, Freedom Program and the group abuse no more for your tireless support of women who are victimized, stigmatized, left crying on the floor, stereotyped in prison, locked behind closed doors. Once I had processed what had happened, I made a promise to myself. I would never, ever let another soul control me with a spell. I am no longer a victim. I am lucky for my life. So I wrote this for the women who in their story don't survive. I wrote this for enablers who turn a blind eye. This is not just a story. Real women die. I wrote this for all women living secret lives to give them strength and courage so that they too may survive. Everyone knows someone who is going through secret hell. So learn to spot the signs so you're that someone they might tell. Support your fellow women. Cast all judgment aside, taboos. They can be broken, truth can win through lies. Leaving isn't easy. Instead of asking why, please take some time to listen to another woman's cry. Thank you very much. Thank you.